this evening, um, our friend and colleague, Joanna, was going to give the evening talk. And although she's feeling much better, uh, her voice disappeared. So we had many thoughts about how we could, you know, pantomime what she was going to say and so on. But we thought since no one of us could possibly replace her, that we would give you a chorus of voices. So um, the four of us he seated, seated here will be uh, collectively talking to you about the four Brahma-viharas, the four boundless qualities of the heart. So each of us will give you a piece of that. And then uh, tonight at 9 o'clock, at the closing sitting, Dara will offer a guided uh, meditation uh, on uh, Brahma-viharas. So you'll have a two-part teaching uh, of this. And we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so I um, want to open by saying a few kind of general remarks about the Brahma-viharas and give a little bit of context. Um, so there are four Brahma-viharas, which are, they re- reflect or mirror the names on your buildings where you are living. Right? So metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, joy, or sometimes selfless joy, and the wise quality of the heart, of equanimity. So I want to say a little bit about metta, but metta in the context of uh, the other four. So I think of, well, let me say first that these qualities are offered as a kind of parallel or corollary set of teachings to the teachings of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta that we've been um, offering. And I think it's important to understand that they're not about, uh, we've been talking about meditation as shifting from doing to being. And these aren't states that you're trying to like get. They are much more, you could think of them as attitudes toward or a stance toward your experience. So they're like flavors that can infuse mindfulness, your relationship to your experience in this way. In the uh, the Buddha had the beautiful language in which he talked about inclining the mind or inclining the heart-mind. So it's a way of leaning into these qualities which are in fact innate in us. So metta, loving-kindness, I think of as kind of the, the base. And metta is that innate quality of the heart that has a sense of, uh, of warmth. I tend to like recently the term tenderness kind of tenderness and sensitivity of the heart. That is, if you try this just now, if you bring into your mind's eye something that brings a sense of 
loving kindness, of warmth to the heart. Often uh, like small children or puppies are good images to bring. So something that kind of brightens the heart-mind. And if you imagine a person, an animal, a baby, something, and then you notice what happens spontaneously in your heart, what we think of as our affective field, this is that innate movement of the heart that we call metta. And when that tender, sensitive heart meets dukkha, difficulty, the natural or spontaneous arising is karuna, compassion, which Jozen will speak about in a moment. And when the tender, sensitive heart meets sukha, sukha is sweetness or delight, the natural response is delight, is joy. And then, as I said, uh, upekka is the wise quality of the heart, a kind of stable, balanced wisdom that is infused through these various other flavors of heartfulness. So I wanted to share with you the story, and it's really kind of more of a mythological story than a historical story, of how the teaching of the Brahma Viharas came about, because it's a beautiful story. And I'd invite you, as you listen, to think of it more as mythology than fact. Just as sometimes when you reflect on your dreams, you can understand that that what arises in a dream is more, can be understood more as symbol or archetype or uh, kind of a universal truth as opposed to a hard fact. So keep that in mind as I tell you the story. And the story is that um, 500 monks gathered from all across India uh, to receive instruction from the Buddha. And after they receive instruction, they would go out into the countryside and find a place to gather and practice together in community for an extended period of time. And so they set out and they found what they thought was the perfect spot, a remote location in the foothills of the Himalayas. And um, here's a description. It said, the spot that they found appeared like a glistening blue quartz crystal. A glistening blue quartz crystal. It was embellished with a cool, dense green forest and a stretch of ground strewn with sand that resembled a pearl net or a silver sheet. And it was furnished with a clean spring of cool, fresh water. And I was thinking about how when we, you know, we try to set up our spot, we try to get like the perfect spot with the right balance of cushions and shawl, or maybe when you're out trying to find your walking spot, you want to get that perfect spot, right? So this is some, tells us something about our mind. 
So they found what they thought was the perfect spot. And not only was it a beautiful spot, but there were villages nearby. And the villagers were so delighted to have this huge group of monks show up, these holy men, because it was very remote and they weren't used to having this gathering of people. And so they fed them and they built them little huts in the, at the edges of the forest. And it all seemed perfect. So you know there's going to be a something, right? So the problem was that this uh, beautiful forest where they found their spot, uh, somebody was already living there. And the, the who was living there were what are referred to as kind of uh, tree spirits or deities or devas. So there was this whole community of tree spirits who they were living in the forest. And so initially when the monks moved in, they were very respectful and kind of patient. Like, okay, these holy folks have arrived. We're going to back off and let them do their thing. And they did that for a day. And then they did it for another day. And then they did it for another day. And then they were like, what is going on? We want our forest back. So they got impatient. And they didn't, they didn't want to give this up for the whole months of the retreat that the monks would, were going to be there. And so, you know, what do you do when there's a problem in your forest? If you're a tree spirit, you call a meeting. So they had a meeting. They gathered all the tree spirits together and they kind of brainstormed, what are we going to do? And they decided that they would um, send down kind of magical, unpleasant sights, sounds, and smells that would frighten the monks. So they didn't really want to harm them. They just wanted them to go away, basically. <laughs> so they they kind of cast these magical spells and they sent down terrible smells and scary sounds and, you know, what looked like what we might these days call ghost something. And sure enough, the monks, to use our common language or our current language, they freaked out and they packed up and fled back to the Buddha. And they went back to the Buddha and um, they uh, told their sad story about what happened and um, begged him to please help them find a better spot. See, this is a metaphor, right? (laughs) We need to find a better spot. And so the Buddha opened his wisdom eye and he looked all across the country and he saw there wasn't a better spot. And so he told them, nope, you have to go back to the tree spirit forest, but I'm going to send this teaching with you. And he taught them what we now know of as the metta sutta. So he, it's really beautiful that the, the sutta, the sutta on loving kindness is offered to us was offered by the Buddha to these monks as a response to their fear, as a response to their inability to stay present with difficult or unpleasant sights, sounds, smells, which we might understand as not just external, but also internal for us. And I'll close with just reading you the the kind of... um, one of the key phrases or paragraphs from the Metta Sutta and then pass to the next person. This phrase, 
These phrases are the root of what becomes the form for engaging in Brahma-vihara practice, which you'll learn more about as we go. So at the center of the sutta, it said, May all beings be happy. May they live in safety and peace. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall or short, thick or thin, seen or unseen, near or far, born or to be born, may we all be happy. And this is the spirit of cultivating the Brahma-viharas, is that it's not a command. You be happy. And it's not a judgment. You should be happy. This is about being with what is. And what is isn't always happy. And yet, we can cultivate the wish. That's the spirit of it. It's the wish for ourselves and for, as it says, all beings everywhere to be happy. (coughs) To be loving is to be compassionate. To be compassionate is to be loving. That's what came to heart for me earlier when we were in discussion with Joanna. And Joanna was coughing and wanted to be here. And I even offered, I was like, just whisper in my ear and I'll share what you want to say. I'll I'll be your voice. There was this big loving piece that Joanna wanted to share and will share. And it was a huge swarm of compassion that we all felt coming together and conversing, problem solving in a loving, compassionate way through loving kindness. And for that to arise as quickly as it has is testament to practice. It's like no question, no hesitation, no doubt. I'd like to share with you a quote from Bell Hooks, who's an author, professor, and practitioner. Bell Hooks shares... Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as a means of escape. Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as a means of escape. And we may hear that in that word others can be highlighted as a othering of someone else, but many times we other ourselves. 
we're not loving with ourselves, we're not compassionate with ourselves. And I feel a deep sense of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity with all of you being in practice, having signed up to be in a sense of solitary, however, within Sangha and community. As Pam mentioned, this is a heart practice compassion. There's a quivering in the heart that arises. When we're not being true with ourselves, when we're caught in the headspace, the heart may be quivering and we may be ignoring that felt sense. And that's the heart saying, hello, how you doing? There's a near enemy of compassion. It's understood to be pity. That can be a form of aversion as well. And that form of aversion is also connected with othering, the distancing. When we understand that, when we can feel into that and be with that, and we call it the near enemy because it can be very difficult to understand. This is when compassion can arise and does arise. The far enemy of compassion, of karuna, being cruelty. Far enemy meaning that it's kind of have some familiarity with it. We've seen it. We have some examples of it, whether it's in our lives or on television. But even cruelty can be subtle. Cruelty itself, as I mentioned before, can come back to a cruelty on ourselves, subtle hatred on ourselves. It can feel wise in that sense. And what I mean by that, these are our thoughts that can be projections. Thus, they can be projections onto others. They can be very cruel. They can be hateful. They can be projections onto ourselves. Many times they are. So the growing of this compassion allows us to dissolve this aversion. Allows us to dissolve the hatred and cruelty. It brings us closer, not only to ourselves and with ourselves, but with each other as a Sangha. So if I reread this quote from Bell Hooks and replace the word loving with compassion, the felt sense is almost the same. Knowing how to be solitary essential to the art of compassion 
When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as a means of escape. We can be compassionate with ourselves, with our thoughts, with our projections. This opens up the heart space and it allows some room to play with some forgiveness. To be loving is to be compassionate. To be compassionate is to be loving, hand in hand. I almost see them as a swirl, dancing in a cone, perhaps. So for everyone staying in Karuna House, it's an honor to represent compassion on our behalf. Thank you. So I think I'm the luckiest. I get to talk about joy. This is one of my favorite Dhamma topics. Actually, my Dhamma name means joy. I have a, a Tibetan name when I took refuge. It's Chukigawa, which means joyful Dharma. So that's kind of a blessing to get to feel happy when we're practicing. And this, this particular flavor of joy, mudita, it's often not talked about so frequently. We hear about metta a lot. We hear about compassion, equanimity. Mudita, I think, can be very difficult to practice because it's this appreciative joy in the happiness of others. So you can think about seeing a friend who has some kind of success, gets a good job, or passes a test. Good news preparing a birthday cake for a dear friend. There's this uplifting of the heart that happens. And it easily slides into jealousy, envy, comparing mind, poverty mentality. So very rich territory to explore. With all of these Brahma Viharas, But it's so beautiful, the story that Pam shared, because Brahma Vihara, Brahma means divine, and Vihara means abode or abiding. So it's like this divine place to dwell. I like to think about it as a refuge, a safe place. And often these qualities of the heart feels like the only safe place to be. Like when the monks went back to practice in this beautiful grove and they did metta for the tree spirits, everything was harmonious. They made friends and they could stay. 
So sometimes it feels like, I've been talking to some of you about this, as these qualities of the heart start to shine and we tap into what's here, it, can, it feels like this protection, like a, a donut, a goodness of donut, a donut of goodness. <laughs> it's like all around us, right? Like an inner tube. And suffering or difficulty bounces off. Right? Then we can have the courage to approach suffering with compassion instead of aversion. And we have the courageous and bright heart that sees happiness in others and rejoices with them. It doesn't become about us and what we don't have and what we wish we had. It's more like the more happiness, the more there is to go around. Yes, may your blessings continue. I'm so happy that you're happy. So these are all trainings, right? We're not perfect at these. So like polishing a crystal, we're just training gently, inclining the mind. And then we get to see all the shadow places that come out. But it's beautiful because it's like holding something in your hand. When we can hold this whole human experience with these flavors of friendliness, compassion, joy. You see others in their full humanity, and we can be seen in our full humanity. And what a gift that is to be seen fully. I like to start with the ancestors when I practice mudita. This sense of my grandmothers who would see me who, who did see me when I was little, and now I think of them looking down on me, I'm feeling proud and rejoicing. Like, look, it's granddaughter. <laughs> you know, with the ancestors, these lineages, how they held us with joy, appreciation, wanting us to be happy, celebrating our successes. They tell us we have the right to be happy. So there's a sense of family that starts to come. Brother David Stondal Ross, who is a Benedictine monk and environmentalist activist. I love this quote. I read this quote from him a lot. He says, In my best, my most alive moments, in my mystical moments, if you want, I have a profound sense of belonging. At those moments, I'm aware of being truly at home in this universe. I know that I'm not an orphan here. There's no longer any doubt in my mind that I belong to this earth household in which each member belongs to all others. Bugs to beavers, black-eyed Susans to black holes, quirks to quails, lightning to fireflies, humans to hyenas and humus, to say yes to this limitless mutual belonging is love. And when we're practicing joy, sympathetic joy, appreciative joy, it's this sense of belonging, this limitless mutual belonging.
Traditionally, when we do this practice, we start with a loved one, a dear friend, someone who's easy to love, who's doing well, who's doing good. And for me, that person is my poppy. It's my dad. He's 81. And he's very healthy. He's strong and vital and just doing good. And it's so easy to think about him. He likes to go on the river in his raft, and he goes on these multiple rafting trips by himself. And so when I practice mudita, I think of him in his raft on the river, rowing down the river. And I just think, yes, may you continue in this way. May your happiness increase. May your many blessings continue. And then it's interesting to watch because he's my dad. I want him to stay healthy and strong. And sometimes this practice can shift into it being about me instead of about him. Right? I want you to be happy so you'll still be here for me. <laughs> so it's, it's good to just notice, titrate, when does this practice become about me and how I am versus really freely, open-heartedly rejoicing in another's well-being. I practice mudita a lot uh, lately because I'm very fortunate this year to live in Hawaii. A lot of happy people there. Not all happiness, for sure. But I live near a beach, beautiful beach. And there's a lot of wind. We live on the windward side, so a lot of the trade winds come, you know, roaring along the beach. It's this big bay, and almost every day you go out, and from sunrise to sunset, there's kite surfers. So this whole crew of people with their boards and these huge kites, and they get up, and it looks actually really difficult. But they have these bells, and they get up there, and they just go racing across the bay. And it was interesting, some of the first days I was out seeing them, I was like, oh, I want to learn. I want to do that. You know, sometimes they catch air and they, like, huge jumps and spins. They come floating back down into the water. And there was some pain. You know, I had some, like, oh, I want that. I want to do it. And now, because I see them every day, I'm like, great. Look at these others who are enjoying this. I don't need to. I don't have to go learn. It looks really hard to learn, too. (laughs) But it's like, I love watching them. When they catch all that air, it's almost like I get to catch the air. (laughs) And then this is an interesting territory, too, to explore, because the, the near enemy, or, you know, something when it slides off of mudita into something else, that might feel like mudita, but not quite. This is exuberance, or that kind of big elation that's like, some of you might have felt that on retreat. You have a lot of energy, and the sun, and the birds, and it's so beautiful. Gets a little bit out of balance. So this is lovely. We're going to hear about equanimity soon. But they all kind of balance each other. There's always a wisdom that comes in that sees, yeah, there's a lot of happiness in Hawaii, for sure. 
And there's all this other humanity going on. There's real tragedy and injustice and oppression alive and well there. So how do we stay strong and wise with joy? Knowing, yes, we can rejoice and be in this happiness and our mutual belonging and not ignore the real dukkha that's around us all the time. We're not denying that. So this is opening, opening, opening. I'm sure many of you have gotten to know comparing mind really well in this retreat. Comes out pretty strong. In Pali, the word for comparing mind is mana. And it's the sense of being better than, less than, or equal to. So this is interesting, right? When any time that we're comparing the self and other, then we usually tend to rate. We're ranking, yeah, we're noticing. And even if we're feeling equal to, this is a confused mind state. This is still uh, not quite real. This beautiful Tibetan phrase that says something like, when there is a self, there is an other. And then all kinds of problems arise. (laughs) So we're getting to know comparing mind, and especially with mudita, this is one to just watch out for. Because often, so funny, we we see other people successful, happy, brilliant, making money, all these things that we want, right? And we think because they are, we can't. Or somehow it shines all the ways that we're not getting those things. So what is that that poverty mentality? It's like there's not enough to go around. It's just interesting to see that mind. And it's 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 cause for compassion for sure, right? So mudita is growing beyond the scarcity mentality to know that there really is enough to go around. And this isn't some Pollyannish, like, yeah, we're all going to have the same resources. No. We don't all start off from the same place. But when we touch into this Buddha nature, this awareness and clarity that we have, we're born with our birthright, then that's all beings. That's no exception. All have the same right and the same ability to be free. So I just have a couple quotes and a story, little story. I learned today about Daisy Bates. She was a civil rights worker who supported the integration of children of color in Little Rock, Arkansas. She herself only had an eighth grade education. But she worked so hard and felt such gratification to see her kids that she helped and supported go through all the way through college. So that's Mudita. Audre Lorde, who has these beautiful essays I've been reading, she says, For once we begin to feel deeply all the aspects of our lives, we begin to demand from ourselves and from our life pursuits that they feel in accordance with that joy that we know ourselves to be capable of. 
So we're feeling everything. And then we bring in its permission to actually be alive and delight in it. If it doesn't include everything, it's not real mudita. So if you'd like to practice this on your own, some phrases you can consider. May your many blessings continue. I'm happy that you're happy. May your happiness and good fortune continue. May your blessings shine. So to end, I'll just quote the Buddha. He has this beautiful chant, these instructions on how to practice the Brahma Viharas. This goes for all four. I'll just read the stanza that's about joy. Here, practitioners, a disciple lets their mind pervade one quarter of the world with thoughts of unselfish joy, and so the second quarter and the third and so the fourth, and thus the whole wide world above, below, around, everywhere, and equally. They continue to pervade with a heart of unselfish joy abundant, grown great, measureless, without hostility or ill will. Thank you. So the fourth of the divine abodes, it is a beautiful phrase, divine abodes, because it's pointing at the potential for what happens when the heart is free, that we live in a divine abode, in a heartfelt world. And it doesn't mean the world is perfect or does what we want, but we start to feel the heartfulness that, as I believe Pam said, is inherent for us when the heart is free. And the Vipassana practice helps lead to the unbinding of the heart because we have one basic practice we're doing here. We're being here and we learn a really skillful technique. We learn to let go of holding on to anything really. And the heart begins to open or to flower is often the word that's used or become a jewel that is full of loving kindness and compassion and joy. And interestingly enough, equanimity, upeka. How many people here in the upeka building? Good, you're the equanimity people in upeka, that's good. You get to have a lot of uh, 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 equanimity while you're here, as much as you want, because you're, li- you're already living there. 
And um, it's beautiful. I was also going to use a similar version of um, what Devin just said about the Buddha describing the heart-mind that's filled with equanimity as abundant and exalted and immeasurable. I mean, and you just hear the language that comes with the Brahma Viharas. It's poetic language because it's about the poetry of who and what we are when our heart is revealed in this way. And um, equanimity is really an evenness or a balance is often the other word that's used for uh, upeka, balance. It's a balance of heart and mind uh, that is unshakable, that we can land in or find our home in. And sometimes the word, instead of equanimity, they talk about inner equipoise, inner equipoise. And that's really also a lovely word, equipoise, because it has a very somatic feel to it. It's about being here with an open heart and being balanced at the same time. So not so much shaken by what are called the eight worldly winds of gain and loss or honor or dishonor or praise and blame or pleasure or pain, but actually to be able to relax into our abode, which is and can feel divine when the Brahma Viharas are alive in this way. <clears throat> Another word that is, is really I like with... Uh, equanimity and equipoise is serenity. And it's not a word that we we use a lot. I don't use it a lot in daily life. You know, okay, I'm feeling really serene today. I mean, it's not, but, but, and so, but we're also culturally, it's not highlighted as one of the potentials for us as human beings. All the difficult things are highlighted right being angry or being sad or grieving or furious or or unconscious or this or the, you know and those all have their place but the potential for our own serenity is not something we consider and one of the ways i understand it is um in in sanskrit the word is upeksha uh, upeka in Pali, upeksha in Sanskrit, and upa means um, over, and sha, upeksha, means to look, to look over. And really, equanimity is like when you go up on the top of a mountain and then you see all the land and you get a different perspective about reality. It's not the same as when you're down in the village or city or at Spirit Rock, but when you go up, if you happen to take a big hike and you go up and look down, oh, it puts it all in perspective. It all makes sense in a certain way that we can begin to relax because we, we've begun to overlook the whole situation. And that's one of the things that happens with our meditation practice, we begin to see, and this is a very concise way to say it, it's all okay. 
being here is okay. Whatever happens is actually okay. It may not be what we want, may not be what we like, may not be, you know, we may not end up looking like one of the statues behind me, but it's still, we see, oh, we're okay. And that as we learn to relax here in the present moment, a kind of heartfelt equanimity opens that it's okay. And it's often difficult for people to recognize equanimity. Um, um, Sometimes it's confused with detachment. And it's not detachment, like they're talking about the near or far enemies. And uh, detachment is one of the enemies because it's not about being detached. It's about being here and being able to respond to reality with our balance, with our intelligence, with our heartfulness, with our kindness, with our love, with our joy, and with the okayness of we're going to be okay no matter what happens, actually. It was funny, I almost brought it, but I saw a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. talking about how he'd gone to the mountaintop you know, he's describing equanimity in a similar way. He'd gone to the mountaintop, the mountaintop and he knew everything was going to be okay. And it didn't mean bad things weren't going to happen. But he got to see from that looking over perspective of how, how reality works. And he could... There was a part of him that relaxed, this is my language, or that could rest in his being and who he was, even though he knew he could get killed doing what he was doing. And that's a a radical equanimity. And he displayed a radical heartfulness over and over and over again. And so equanimity is sometimes called the pinnacle of the four divine abodes. <clears throat> and it, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, he says, Upeka, the last, does not override or negate the preceding three, but it perfects them and it consummates them. And so the, it's considered the wisdom factor of the heart. And I think it's so beautiful that we can discover our heart's wisdom because sometimes we're moved around by our heart's emotionality. And it's fine to be emotional, but, but the equanimity in this way, this kind of heartfulness has a way of balancing metta and karuna and mudita. And seeing that even the metta and karuna and mudita mudita is not based on our preference. It's based on seeing clearly. Really what everybody's been saying, what Devin was just saying, oh, you see the joy that somebody's ha- having and you can have joy for their joy. You get, you get, oh, it's good. It's not limited, that joy or the compassion which we all felt about Joanna 
tonight. You know, we just felt it that Josen was pointing at it. it. Just comes naturally. We just we were all like. I mean, she felt really bad. She really. She's a really good teacher. She's got great things to say. We want to hear what she has to say, and then she can't talk. And, and we're trying to get her to not even talk to us so she can save her voice. And, you know, and, uh, but it just, the compassion comes so naturally. Or the loving kindness when we see how reality works and there's something good here that's inherent. And so the, the, upekka or equanimity in metta, it allows for our happiness and our wish for people's happiness not to get lost in craving for their happiness or being attached to them being happy, but just really offering our loving kindness and wishing really that all beings be happy. And the uh, equanimity in relation to compassion brings a kind of courage, an unwavering courage that allows us to face dukkha, suffering, and not just get caught in our reactions to suffering, whether it's our suffering or the suffering of others. And so there's a, a way of, it does, it's not, it, it allows a certain balance so we're not just codependent. There is suffering and it's painful and it hurts. And our compassion is not just, oh, we have to fix everything. No, it's a heartfelt care that everybody be really free of suffering. And with the mudita, the joy, appreciative joy, allows us to feel joy for others, as, as Devin was saying, but it's without envy or without jealousy or without having to change ourselves, we can really, we can enjoy the joy of others. And they have a similar relationship one to another that the compassion joys equanimity from falling into cold indifference. Right, it balances it, it, the compassion functions to bring balance to equanimity. So it's not just detachment or cold indifference. And the metta um, gives uh, equanimity its impartiality, um, not just getting caught in the distinctions or in divisiveness. And joy allows equanimity to be infused with a joyfulness. And it's often pointed at in terms of not sure. Yeah, even on this Buddha you can see there's a little smile that the Buddha has, and it's talked about as the divine smile on the face of the Buddha, a smile even in spite of seeing dukkha. And the last piece I'll say are some of the language or phrases that support the Brahma Viharas, uh, excuse me, equanimity. And so, you know, um, 
if we're doing it as in a formal practice as phrases, the phrases are all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness is, or unhappiness is dependent on their actions, not upon my wishes for them. It's also, again, it's like being on the mountaintop and seeing the big picture. We offer all our good wishes and our kindness and care and compassion and joy. And also, we also let go at the same time. It's the heart that can stay present with all the ups and downs, right? And so other phrases for equanimity, may we all accept things as they are. May we all accept things as they are. And I want to just say one thing. Remember, to accept things as they are doesn't mean ultimately be passive. That's not what it means. It means, oh, when we accept things as they are, we can respond with our creativity, with our intelligence, with our sword-like wisdom when that's needed. But it means first we actually have to accept, oh, this is the way it is, in order for the totality of who we are to respond to the way things are. I, uh, other phrases, I wish happiness, but I wish for you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. This is a parent's equanimity, which I know a little about. And it's really an interesting part. I believe it's part of good parenting that ultimately you love your child, you wish them all kinds of loving kindness, you're compassionate for them, you totally enjoy their success, their happiness, their good fortune, and also it's their life and you have to let them live it so they can become themselves fully. And I'll just end with, it's not exactly Buddhist, but it's close enough. It's from uh, 12-step, I believe. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That brings a lot of equanimity, the wisdom to know the difference. So let's sit for a minute before we end. And just for the last moment, please offer your good heart and your good heart's wishes to yourself. May you be happy.
or you could say, may I be happy, or may I be peaceful. May I be safe. May I enjoy health as much as possible. And may I live with ease of well-being. and sending our heartfulness out to all beings. May all beings be safe, happy, healthy. May all beings live with ease.